Ed Trusted, the critical race theory craze that's sweeping the nation. Episode two, the long arm of the law. I think the absolute worst thing that people who are opposed to critical race theory could have done is to promote these laws. If you just look at legal history, the one thing that you don't want to do is to codify something into law because once it's codified, now you have a conversation about it. Now we actually can discuss who is engaged in what discrimination. Whether If it were students having a discussion and certain viewpoints were suppressed in an organic conversation among students who were not the state, that would be one thing. But now you have the state actually saying, you cannot talk about these topics in these manners. That's not allowed. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education no matter what their background. This is the second episode of a new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we're tackling a rather puzzling phenomenon that has sprung up lately and is affecting schools, school boards, and state legislatures. I'm talking about the accusation that all of a sudden the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children. Yes, it's the critical race theory craze that's sweeping the nation. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to in some way restrict the instruction schools provide children, according to an analysis by Education Week. Some specifically mention critical race theory as something to be forbidden. In our opening episode, we laid out many of the issues raised by this issue in a fabulous conversation with Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, a scholar who brought the analysis of critical race theory to the field of education. In this episode, we're going to look closely at the legislation and rules that have been proposed and adopted in some states. We have two fabulous guests to talk about this. Emerson Sykes is a staff attorney at the ACLU, where he focuses on First Amendment issues. He holds a JD from New York University Law School and a Master of Public Affairs degree from the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. He earned his undergraduate degree in political science at Stanford University. He has worked with both the New York City government and the government of Ghana and other African countries. He recently wrote a piece talking about the efforts in a number of states to limit what teachers can talk about in terms of race and racism that I will link to in the show notes. Our other guest, Matthew Shaw, became assistant professor of public policy and education assistant professor of law at Vanderbilt University after completing his doctorate in education at Harvard University and his law degree in Columbia. So let's begin by talking about something that's really striking to me. In October, a guy named Christopher Rufo went on Tucker Carlson's show to denounce a host of things that he called critical race theory. Shortly thereafter, then-President Donald Trump announced that he was forbidding any contractors from using the term critical race theory in trainings of the government workforce. And nine months later, half the states have moved in some way to try to forbid or limit the discussion of the use of critical race theory. Aside from the sloppiness of the language in the the legislation, which we'll, we'll talk about, What's so striking to me is how fast this has spread. Nine states have actually passed laws or other bans related to this issue. How could this have happened so quickly? Mr. Sykes, aren't state legislatures supposed to be deliberative? Aren't they supposed to kind of talk about this stuff a bit? Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I've worked in a lot of different kinds of legislatures and uh, some things take a long time and some things take no time at all. I always laugh whenever our legislative folks tell me, well, the timeline seems like nothing's going to happen, but that could change at any second. So uh, in terms of predicting the timeline for legislation, I, I gave up doing that a long time ago. But it is, of course, noteworthy that we've seen these bills proliferate so quickly. This movement, you know, the, the conservative organizations and individuals behind uh, this movement have been exceptionally successful in spreading their message far and wide very quickly. And I was just reading some of them sort of bragging that they're, the people who are really pushing this movement at the grassroots are con- so, quote unquote concerned parents at the very local level. 
They are not conspiracy theorists. They're not nationalists. They're not necessarily, you know, radicals. They might not even have supported Donald Trump, but they have activated a massive amount of people with a grassroots education campaign, uh, sort of stigmatizing, co-opting and stigmatizing uh, and totally reinterpreting the or, or sort of redefining critical race theory uh, to sort of become uh, a boogeyman or a scapegoat for all sorts of different ideas that they know that are alarming uh, to, a, to a broad range of folks within the United States. So, Dr. Shaw, you're in one of the states that passed one of these uh, laws. I mean, that was fast, right? Was it fast for Tennessee? Was it? Well, I mean, it was fast. I mean, it, it was fast in Tennessee. It was fast elsewhere, as uh, Mr. Sykes just said. But I think that's actually undermining whatever the purpose is that these groups have pushed these laws on the states. Um, primarily, it's it's kind of proving against its point. If you're able to move this as quickly as they have, and the political will is clearly against the conversation of critical race theory in classes, then what exactly is the threat that CRT poses? Alternately, you could say the CRT is being proved by the actual promotion of these laws, that the structures of the law will silence and distort and misrepresent history, which is the entire purpose of critical race theory, which comes from law, which is to say, we should look at our institutions and the way our institutions are constructed, how they behave, how they marginalize certain groups of people um, from the perspective of those who have been disenfranchised, from those who have been marginalized and elevate not only their stories through counter stories, but reform how our institutions behave. The actual behavior of the legislatures in passing these laws underscores the need for critical race theory. And interestingly enough, not ironically, is part and parcel of the conversation that the laws purport to try to silence. So it is going to be very interesting. I think one of the things that they missed, the people who are promoting these laws, is that, yes, states generally have the authority in crafting the curriculum um, of their states. They have is, is broad-based and in most circumstances, the courts are not going to interfere and try to substitute their judgment for the judgments of either state or local authorities. But you can't cross the line in limiting certain viewpoints and the language, both in the laws and in the conversation about the laws, has not been about the content of history. It's not been about content of civics or content about any of the things, um, the, the broad-based subject matters. It's been about viewpoints. And that's just flatly unconstitutional to do. And the rapid movement in passing these laws is only underscoring the harm to those who have viewpoints that differ from the ones that the states would prefer to us to talk about, the ones they would prefer us to adopt. Can I just jump back in here quickly? I would be remiss if I didn't note, though, I think it's important where we start this conversation. In one sense, this is a very rapid movement that started with Trump's executive order in November. But I think we have to be careful about starting our narrative there, because as we all know, and as Professor Shaw just said, you know, this movement is a backlash. It's a backlash against the proliferation of anti-racist education and anti-racist discourse in the United States, especially over the last two years, 18 months. Right. And so we can see it as. And what was that? <laughs> Where did that movement come from? That was a backlash to what came before it, right? So we have whitewashing of education. We have efforts at reform. And this is the backlash at the, at the largely successful, or at least initially successful, efforts at reform. Certainly, we have a lot more work to do. But I think my most optimistic reading uh, is that this is the last gasp of resistance against what is clearly a pervasive uh, cultural shift within the United States. That is an that is an optimistic reading, <laughs> Dr. Shaw. You yes, want to take is. him I'm on? Definitely optimistic. <laughs> I was going to say one. no. I mean, actually, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that and, and, and raise you one. I think the absolute worst thing that people who are opposed to critical race theory could have done is to promote these laws. Um, if you just look at legal history, the one thing that you don't want to do is to codify something into law because once it's codified, now you have a conversation about it. Right now, we actually can discuss. Who is engaged in what discrimination? Whether If it were students having a discussion and certain viewpoints were suppressed in an organic conversation among students who were not the state, that would be one thing. 
But now you have the state actually saying you cannot talk about these topics in these manners. That's not allowed. And where you could have, where it would have been difficult to say an individual teacher was suppressing a conversation because that's a fat question and one would have needed to be in the classroom and all types of recordings would have had to happen. And that would have been an entire issue. Now you have a very clear artifact. The state has passed a law that has says, we, you cannot talk about these topics that we've agreed upon, this content in this manner, this viewpoint. So now you have a very clear example of intentional viewpoint discrimination. And all of these people going on the air saying all the types of things they're saying in writing, saying we are literally trying to suppress this particular viewpoint is giving a cause of action oxygen. So I think, you know, is in as much as this is a situation that we're dealing with in the short term, they've actually kind of written their own um, obituary in a sense. Yeah. Because now it gives them something really that that folks can begin to push against on their own. I'm teaching the facts, but you're trying now to tell me how to really go about putting perspectives on the page. And whenever you teach facts, if you're worried about the discomfort of somebody, you can never really regulate or understand the depth to which something's going to be uncomfortable for somebody else. And so I definitely appreciate the fact that you're talking about, you know, putting this out and reifying it and codifying it gives those who want to legislate against it some oxygen and a way forward to actually look at it through the law, which is important. Well, let's let's get very specific. There was last week... uh, after we even um, arranged to have this conversation, there was a teacher in Tennessee. She was fired. Fired. Um, and the so is there a cause of action, um, Mr. ACLU lawyer? I think this is this is this is ba- you know this is teed up for you. Well, yeah. I mean, I can speak a little bit to the specific. I'm, I've read the basic news reports on what you're talking about. I, I don't want to you know weigh in on a particular instance of not knowing all of the facts, but I can say generally that, you know, we, we agree with, with, with Matthew Shaw that there, these, a lot of these laws are vulnerable to litigation. Some of them have been amended significantly in order to avoid their most obvious constitutional infirmities. But we think that even on laws that we can't challenge facially because they were clever enough in how they worded it, we don't think that the implementation will be so narrow. And so the place that we are right now is we're working with a broad coalition. You know, what we've seen is a massive coalition of organizations working at the grassroots level and at the highest levels to push these bans. And we're going to need to see an equal and opposite reaction uh, in order to, to push back against this momentum. And so, you know, the ACLU is working with the usual suspects in terms of the NAACP, LDF, and Lawyers Committee, and lots of other organizations. I would just note it's important to say that Lambda Legal did win in the Ninth Circuit uh, against the executive order ruling that it, it impermissibly uh, regulated the, the actions of contractors because it said that if you're a government contractee, you can't engage in anti-racism training even on your own time and on your own dime. And they said that that was going beyond um, the government's authority to legislate as a contractor. So it's important to say that they, there has been already one legal win. But of course, this is a massive movement. It's going to take more than one legal win. Uh, so we are evaluating litigation options in lots and lots of states. I think we already have seen enforcement actions that are troubling that we may well sue on before this podcast uh, is aired. Uh, but you know, we're very much ready to act uh, we've, we have a variety of First Amendment arguments, vagueness arguments, um, also racial discrimination arguments, the viewpoint discrimination arguments that, that Professor Shaw was mentioning. Uh, we're sort of finalizing our claims, but we are ready uh, to jump as soon as we think that there's a, a winnable lawsuit. Maybe just one word on the Tennessee specific situation. As I understand it, that was this teacher was fired for two actions. One was circulating a ta Coates uh, op-ed about President Trump, and the other was for circulating a, a poem. And both of those, the, the the enforcement action and the firing were not related directly to the Tennessee law. That doesn't mean it's not concerning, uh, but it's important to note that some things are based on the law, some things are just based on the atmospherics. We, you know, our local affiliate is aware of the situation and, and we're sort of watching it closely. Um, but I can't really say much more on that specific. But that's the, that type of enforcement action at the local level is really what we're keeping our eye out for because we think that's going to trigger the litigation. 
So I have two thoughts about that. Um, one, I think you kind of underscored what they've done. It's not that they've opened a Pandora's box. They've allowed a much more searching inquiry of what happens in these local levels classrooms. Like we're talking about classroom level conversations now that never would have seen the light of day, that would have had a difficult time proving facts. Now, even though it is not necessarily linked to this um, anti-CRT law, the entire conversation about that is now part of this case. So, you know, we know, broadly speaking, that teachers are required to teach according to the curriculum prescribed by the state. And the state has such an interest in what the curriculum is that if teachers, um, if they stray from that curriculum, they can face adverse employment action, including termination. That's well established. But now you have all of these other issues that are now baked into that adverse employment action. Is it about racial discrimination? Is it about viewpoint discrimination? Are we talking about First Amendment suppression here? Are we telling teachers that they have to suppress the conversations of their students in class? What happens if a student brings up the conversation? You just had the Mahanoy, and I know I've mispronounced the name of that case, the case that um, the Supreme Court just ruled on um, that, that underscored, that reaffirmed the First Amendment rights of students. So this was the, the cheerleader case for those of you mm -hmm. all who are, who are listening. An ACLU said, case, by the way. Yes, yes ACLU case. And, in, you know, it said that, you know, people like students do not leave their rights at the schoolhouse door. And that includes, um, and the school cannot extend its reach beyond the, the school setting to include conversations that happen on Snapchat. So there are lots of conversations about what that looks like and what the actual um, limitations are. But with respect to a conversation that happens in class, if a student were to bring up a CRT perspective, what is the teacher's response to be then? Um, according to the spirit, if not the letter of this law, it would be to suppress it. And how does that work? Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens because of how goofily this law is written. Vagueness is one nice way of saying it. Um, uh, you know, to be more comprehensive, the law doesn't do a lot of what it wants to do, but it does a whole lot of things it shouldn't. Let's look a little bit at the language because the the language of many of the laws sort of starts out similar and then sometimes strays a bit um, depending on the state. But many of them begin with language that seem to derive from the Civil Rights Act. So, for example, the Texas law, and I think the Tennessee law as well, says that no educator should require students to learn that, and I'm quoting here, one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. And so that sounds okay. You know, that's, that's you know, civil rights-y, right? That's, um, and then uh, it goes on to say that state, students should not be taught that an individual by virtue of his race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. And now they're, they're starting to, to build in this idea that, in fact, schools have somehow been, uh, you know, taken over and are, are teaching that white people are inherently evil in some way. And then there are so several other prov provisions. And all of a sudden we get to something really strange that I've never, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so what do I know? I've never seen this in a law. And that is that no educator should require, quote, any individual to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or other form of psychological distress on account of his race or sex. And that just seems, A, odd to me that, that, that the word discomfort is used in a law, and B, actually it raises a, an issue for trans kids. I mean, have aren't the same people writing these laws also very interested in making trans kids very uncomfortable on the basis of their sex? But on the other, that may be a stray issue. I don't know. I don't know that we want to get off on that. But the, the whole question of discomfort, I think, is a really odd one. And I wondered if, if you guys would, would uh, comment on it. I mean, instinctively, I think that's exactly where we should go. I think the very first place we should go is this tangent, because again, I think this law is goofily written, and it's not just in terms of what it intended to do. It's doing a whole lot of things I don't think the drafters wanted it to do, but it can be used very well. There's generally a doctrine of severability. If there are provisions of a law that are unconstitutional, that exceed authority, a court will likely find those unconstitutional or impermissible and save the portions that are. 
saying that students shouldn't feel like no one, no student should be required to feel discomfort on the basis of their race or sex is not necessarily problematic. But I don't think it is cabin to the CRT conversation. And I don't quite know how one could do that and also adhere to the anti-trans legislation. And keep in mind that this bill is now later in time. So if you go by this, the, you know, the general rules, later in time controls, now you have a bill that says whatever it is you are, were trying to do for the anti-trans legislation, you can't make or require a student to feel discomfort on the basis of sex. You know that sex now includes, well, to the extent that if it's because of or on the basis of we're looking at the prepositional phrase, that you can't escape that prepositional phrase by targeting trans kids. So you've just now given trans students a way to fight the anti-trans legislation. And that's a good thing. Second, um, the conversation about discomfort on the basis of race, that's going to be very interesting because one could say most conversations are discomforting to students of color, particularly black students and Native American students in the state of Tennessee because of race. Um, and I'm not being exclusive to the groups of people for whom, you know, general conversations in class are discomforting. What does that look like? Um, I, I can see, you know, teachers saying, well, I didn't intend for it to happen, but it didn't. It, we're not talking about necessarily intent here. It says make people feel discomfortable. So, I mean, we're going to eventually have to have a conversation about what people actually meant and what's what the law actually states. Um, I, I'm puzzled as to how people can have an English language arts class or a history class. And in some instances, even science classes without causing discomfort because of the way that the country has actually developed and evolved and the way that these conversations have emerged. I wondered about the idea of the requirement of somebody to feel that way, right? So if I'm the English language arts teacher, if I'm the history teacher, and I'm going over facts of history, you might feel it, but this language around the requirement for you as a white student, if a teacher is saying to you, you are white, therefore you are you know, discriminatory, racist, is that the requirement that they're talking about? Well, you know, right here it says no educator should require that. So I don't know where there are educators who are requiring that, is what I'm saying. No, it's, it's a great question. We have read and reread these laws and puzzled over them and tried to figure out what on earth they actually mean a lot of the time, and therein lies a lot of the problem, right? So we, we've talked about this a couple of times, but in, 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 in specific legal terms, in order to show vagueness, you can you got to show that it's basically not understandable by the people who are subject to it. So that's like, can teachers even be expected to comply with this law if no one could even know what it means, right? So that's one way of being vague, that those who are responsible for being in compliance can't understand what is expected of them. And the other way it can be vague is if it provides too excessive discretion to the enforcer to interpret it as broadly as they like. Right. And I think that's the other thing that we're really talking about and thinking about and worried about is even these laws that on their face say. Don't be an overt racist. Right. Like you could imagine coming to a judge and the judge saying, you really want me to strike down this law that says don't be racist. You know, so like to the extent that the law on its face might be read in a way that someone might not see the immediate problem. We still think that it's it, that this is not going to be interpreted in that way, and that the clear intent reading between the lines is that they're trying to shut down a particular kind of discourse, a particular kind of education, and that on the local level where they're responsible for implementing this law, for actually creating curricula, approving courses, whether it's at the K-12 level or at the university level, we can talk about how those are different in the First Amendment analysis, and that's figuring into our litigation decisions. But whatever it is, and however cleverly or narrowly or blandly the law was written, or vaguely the law was written, we expect at least some administrators to be zealous in their enforcement. And we think it's really important to, to, to bring the law to bear to block that kind of thing. But even in how they are zealous, we don't know what direction that zeal will go. We don't know whether they're going to take an omnibus approach and say anything that can make any student uncomfortable on the basis of race or sex has to be excluded from the curriculum, which if you're going to take a true compliance perspective is the only way to enforce it, which means I don't quite know if teaching is going to happen. 
But that would, because of how broadly and how poorly defined this law is, that's the only way that you can enforce it. It's to be like, we're going to scour the curriculum and find anything that could possibly offend this from any perspective and remove it. Well, it's interesting because we've, we've actually seen, and we have a lead on something like this, is going for what, what a lot of these laws target are these ideas and these concepts, right? And what we're seeing, inevitably, I might, you, might, you might think, on the local level, is actually banning specific words. And so what we've seen is local school districts, at least in a couple of cases, we're working on chasing down these leads, are saying, you know, you cannot use words like diversity. You cannot use words. Like, and then, then, I mean, it seems like a subtle distinction, but what Professor Shaw was saying is going from banning particular ideas to banning particular words, right? And like the First Amendment really doesn't look kindly on that type of prior restraint on ban because it's it's so obviously going to be arbitrary, right? Like there are a lot. There these are not four letter words. These are not curse words. These are not like you know words that you can't say on TV. <laughs> these are words that are used in ordinary discussion. And banning them, you know, there's a very low bar that these uh, administrators have to meet because the courts are going to give a lot of deference to the board of education and the school boards to approve curricula, right? They don't really want to get involved at that level. It's not, it's sort of beyond the scope of their powers as the judiciary. I mean, yeah, as the judiciary to, to really get into the granular level, they have to be obviously, you know, way off. They have to be, the, the test is, is it rationally related to a legitimate pedagogical interest, right? So if the state can show that whatever they chose to do was rationally related to some legitimate pedagogical interest. It doesn't have to be the best way of doing it. It doesn't even have to be the most efficient way, the best data. None of that applies. As long as it's rationally related, they can get away with it. But some of this stuff, like banning a particular word like diversity, is irrational. And it makes no sense in any context at all, right? And so as Professor Jacques keeps saying, they're really you know, making it easier for us in a lot of respects. But I mean, I mean yeah, go ahead. Even if you were to say that it was rationally related to a legitimate pedagogical interest, and that argument could be made, you still are going to run right into, you know, the First Amendment is brought through the 14th. You're going to run right into it, and you're not going to be able to surmount that. Um, again, these are not curse words. These are not words that are patently offensive. Um, you know, I, I know we're, we're still living under the regime of I know it when I see it, which is a bit problematic even there, but we do know what isn't. Like diversity is not, as, as Mr. Sykes said, a four-letter word and it cannot be made into one. And if you're trying to make it into one, you have to actually explain how, because now you're talking about discursive liberty. And discursive liberty is, at a, is a different conversation than just rational pedagogical decision, firstly. Secondly, I think, honestly, you're going to look at how do you even have an English language arts class? People are going to read when when a book is assigned, some books, the text of the book will it will discomfort other students. And if it is a required text, now we've walked right into it. We've walked into something. You are requiring a book that is going to cause discomfort, and you're requiring students to read it. You might be requiring students to discuss it. How are you going to do that? Same with history textbooks. If I'm requiring you to read about the enslavement of Africans in America, that is going to cause discomfort in some students. It might likely offend other parts of the um, of this bill. How does one do that? And it and it and one can't even go to the place of saying, "Well, these are facts." Well, facts. I mean, I, I don't want to get philosophical entirely, but you know, when it comes to history, there, there's history, there's historiography, there's revisionism. There are a lot of different schools of thought when it comes to what is a fact. Um, and, and those are conversations that we should be encouraging students to have in a critical, not to be ironic, frame. But this law actually gets in the way of true teaching, learning, critical thinking skills, critical development. And whether that's rational or not, I don't think the courts are going to get into whether we should be discouraging critical thought. But what they are going to get into is the, is the viewpoint discrimination that's happening. If the discretion is likely to weigh against one type of um, viewpoint and not broadly on the content, the courts aren't going to uphold it, even if they would otherwise find it rational. Well, getting to that, so one one piece in the Texas legislation, and I honestly just really don't remember if it's in the Tennessee one, but um, uh, 
it says that no educator should teach that meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by members of a particular race to oppress members of another race. Where did meritocracy get this (laughs) unchallenged uh, position in American thought? I've just... I I was really startled by that, especially since the history of the word meritocracy is it was a satiric term coined to make fun of people who thought that a society built on, uh, you know, uh, so-called merit would be a better society. So meritocracy, which started as a sarcastic term, is now the core of our very national identity. To me, this is very odd. Well, Karen, people don't know what you know, right? Like people don't realize the history of meritocracy from that perspective. I didn't know it until a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right. So you're right. So, you know, and if you just if you think about just words on their face, right, like democracy, meritocracy, therefore, they're going to link those two together. Therefore, people are not going to realize it was derived from something satirical, right, to recognize that such a thing is a false concept anyway. You know what I mean? Right. But now it's written into law. Yes, it is. But here's the thing. Without going into any of that, it is very clearly a viewpoint. Right. It is mm-hmm. oddly specific. When you get oddly specific language in a statute or a regulation that says one shall or one, one shall not do, and it is extremely specific and detailed and narrow, you've got to think, is this a viewpoint or is this a content area? We're not talking about, there's no content area of meritocracy. This is a viewpoint of what meritocracy is and how it should be taught. And I mean, one could just, one aims at that and says, come on courts. I mean, if the courts let that one go, then there really is no concept of unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. You know, I I would just say that, of course it's a, it's a complicated term. It's got a complicated history. It's likely unconstitutional, but the way I read it, and I think the message that it's trying to give in that situation is a defense of the status quo, right? And so when they say meritocracy, what they mean is that people got to where they are because they deserve it, and therefore nobody should mess with it, right? Those who are at the top need to stay, are, are there for a reason, and those who are at the bottom should stay there. And I think it's acknowledging that that, that the anti-racist project is inherently about questioning the status quo and the current hierarchy. And so, however, you know, we can laugh and we can tease them for not doing their etymology, but they have hit on keywords that resonate and that trigger strong emotional feeling among their base to get people out in these town halls. And they are mad and they are in the streets. That's right. Absolutely right. Because they're feeling like, if meritocracy doesn't matter anymore, then my kid is going to be something that's going to be taken away from my child. Right. And so now, you know, their they're, CPAC is, you know, marshalling all of the, you know, moms and dads to get on school boards and all such like that and giving them very specific language. They are making sure that they are prepared to wage battle against this notion that meritocracy in the United States is not a real thing. And we know people of color have never been privy to what meritocracy has come to be to be right we know we've never been part of that but anyone who has benefited from this false notion is going to feel some kind of way when you say oh well then what are you going to base my kids um success on you know it's it's this it is this zero-sum game that they are waging war about and sort of using all of this incendiary ignorance (laughs) to make it happen in the world. But whatever the viewpoint one has on it, it is a viewpoint. Um, It is political, it is cultural, maybe sociological, but to forbid a viewpoint from being discussed is the problem. So so if, if the viewpoint were codified in law as saying one must teach that meritocracy is um, you know, is satirical and profoundly and profoundly false and unjustified, that too would be viewpoint discrimination. Because again, the viewpoint discrimination issue isn't about the direction of the viewpoint. It's about the discrimination that the state is having. So the state has decided that one cannot have this conversation 
on the, uh, one cannot have a conversation based on a particular viewpoint. That's the offense. So if people want to have this conversation or people want to behave in certain manners in their private lives, they are more than welcome to do so, except for in apparently schools. And that's the issue. The state has, has gone too far. So this is what I worry about. Um, for decades, history teachers were afraid or uninterested or whatever, but they didn't teach history. And the history textbooks didn't teach history. They didn't teach about slavery. They didn't teach about Jim Crow. They didn't teach about a whole host of things. I worry we'll go back to that. Not, I mean, I, I worry that, that teachers will be intimidated. Principals will be intimidated. School boards will be intimidated by parents or they, they will intimidate parent, uh, teachers. I mean, that's what you guys are trying to fight against. But is that a winning war or a losing war? Well, I think what you're speaking to is what we call the chilling effect, right? Like we can see these enforcement actions. We can see state governments promulgate guidelines and rules that we might sue over. But the intention and the what I, I would assume is already the success of these laws is to make people think twice before they have these conversations and to put up additional barriers to having them and to create confusion on behalf of educators who are really just trying to do their best. Uh, and so I think, you know, the first, the courts don't look kindly on chilling effect. The courts have recognized, you know, the courts, we always say the courts are an unreliable place to find justice, but they're important nonetheless. But even the courts, which are problematic as they are, have recognized that there's a specific kind of harm, as, as Professor Shaw was saying, there's a specific kind of harm in that chilling effect and knowing that the government is trying to intervene in your thought process and in your decision making, right? And in the, in the viewpoint that you hold and express. And that, even in the most unfriendly courts, is not looked kindly upon. And so, um, you know, I agree that by the time we win any lawsuit, we may have lost a great deal. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, the legal, the litigation avenue is an important one. I think it's important that the courts, you know, send a strong signal that state legislatures should move on to the next fad because this one is blatantly unconstitutional. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is a massive cultural and, 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 and historical, you know, discussion and dialogue in this country. Uh, so, so litigation will form just one little part of this, but it's going to take a lot more work, uh, you know, on an interpersonal level, on an institutional level, on an educational level, uh, to try to really, uh, you know, get at the root cause of these types of things. So let's lean in. Let's lean into the law and culture intersection. So there, there is a school of thought that says culturally, this, these conversations weren't going to happen. We were not going to be talking about critical race theory or any of its associated doctrines or applications. In most schools, I mean, most schools just aren't weren't going to be doing this. Um, from the 1950s and the Red Scare, you know, historians and social scientists have largely abdicated teaching of social studies. English language arts, interestingly enough, has been more engaged in these conversations, but even then, in a much more stilted fashion than the current conversation would suggest. The conversations were not happening. Even in your most progressive and, quote, woke places, they just were not happening. Now, everybody's talking about critical race theory. And so something that was on the margins, broadly speaking, is now front and center. And currently, it's about trying to reduce critical race theory or eliminate or um, somehow cabinet. I agree with Mr. Sykes that there's a lot that's going to be lost because you know, the chilling effect will be will be felt even if this law is overturned tomorrow. You're going to have educators who just don't want to engage. You're going to have communities where it's just so desperately unpopular, the concept that nobody's even going to want to approach something that could be considered CRT. That is that much true. And that won't reverse by a court's action. But at the same time, there are likely to be places where this conversation never would have started or it would have started much later in time where we are now gonna have critical race theory conversations about what it is, how it applies. We're gonna have conversations about things, even if we don't call them critical race theory, that are going to emerge and complicate stories about the enslavement of Africans in America, to complicate you know, the history of the treatment of women, um, to complicate 
you know, people who have been included and excluded and under what conditions. Those conversations are actually likelier to happen because this was infused in places where no one had ever thought to even begin that conversation. So, I mean, I tend to be optimistic as a person, mostly because, you know, if, if you work in law a lot, it's always about the problems. And if you don't have some optimism, like how do we move forward? But I'll, I will cabinet by saying there is going to be a lot less loss. I agree with Mr. Sykes entirely. But I think that at the end, we will come out better. Well, I think just to, to piggyback on that, we talked about intersectionality earlier, and this may be another example of where they've, you know, where I, I agree that they might have helped us in terms of how broadly many of these laws are written to include the gender and, and, and you know, there's there, several of them talk about, like, you can't talk about gender diversity. It's lumped in with some of this racial language as well. And so you're now activating all these other bases and we're now all working together. So, you know, I'll just take a second to brag because it's Tennessee related. But just on Friday, we won a case with the ACLU of Tennessee against an anti-trans bathroom sign law in Tennessee. A federal judge struck it down as a violation of the First Amendment compelled speech. So these are the types of alliances that we're building and working on all around the country. Free speech, right to protest. LGBT, reproductive freedom, women's rights, educational freedom, children's rights, all of these groups are now activated and we're all working in concert to make sure that the future that we all want to see is achieved. So in that regard, you know, I'm, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's almost dizzying how many different types of groups see themselves implicated by these discussions. Uh, and so, you know, as we get ourselves organized, I'm very hopeful uh, as a, at our combined strength. And so this is what I'm saying. I mean, you know, to it's somewhat of, of a modern day application of interest convergence with the convergence of, uh, to use Derek Bell's theory, to bring all of these interests that might not have seen themselves in the same conversation, literally situated, not only in the same conversation, but with similar, if not identical um, interest in resolving. So we started the conversation at one point talking about land illegal fighting this law. Well, no one would have thought that would have happened. And you're seeing the NAACP Legal Defense Fund intervening in um, immigration cases. So all of these conversations are convergent because of the manner in which the states are acting. They're acting in the same way each and every time, viewpoint discrimination, suppression of identity expression. And it's interesting that it's a First Amendment. Um, it was a First Amendment decision, that it was about discursive liberty and not necessarily about identity. Um, there are just so many different avenues to attack these laws because, again, a lot of them are so poorly crafted and they activate so many different issues at the same time. You're looking at Title VI. It's not Title VI. Actually, you are looking at Title VI. Like Title VI, you're looking at Title IX. If you're talking about employment, you're looking at Title VII. You might be looking at, at you know, plainly constitutional issues if for some reason the statutes don't support it. You're looking at state constitutional violations. You're looking at inconsistencies between the laws. So, I think what they've actually done is what they should not have done is that they've created common interests and they're just almost infinite pathways to stopping the, the chilling effect across a variety of discrimination. Well, maybe we should close on that note of optimism <laughs> before we descend back down. <laughs> yeah, because I was, I was going to ask a descending question, so oh, well, I'll leave maybe it there. Go, go no, for I, it. I just wonder, with all the coalitions coming together and, and the work that we do at, at Trust, we're thinking about messaging, right? So how do we work across all of the various um, organizations that we're working with? Because we're not doing the legal work on it. We're doing the coalition and the advocacy work on it. So what advice could you give us on how best to message this so that we can stem the effects of the chilling of that chilling effect, right? So we can sort of, we're going to get hit by it. We know it, but what can we do from a messaging standpoint? How should we be tweeting about this? What should our partner organizations be thinking about in terms of messaging around how to get the movable middle 
on board with understanding that this indeed is a false fight, that it is crafted to really do the kind of things that they're saying they don't want to do. This is actually creating division. This is actually a form of academic censorship, not freedom. This is really doublespeak 1984 all over again. So can you, before we end, and maybe talk about some messaging um, possibilities for us? I think it's a really important point because as we keep saying, the legal, the legal, the legal fight is only one small piece. I think a lot of this is still coming together. You'll see different organizations using different messaging. I think we're, we're moving towards a bit of alignment. I think in general, we're in agreement that, you know, the initial framing of anti-CRT is, is not really beneficial to our side. First of all, we're framing it as anti-something and then we're adopting their co-optation and re- definition of a term that means something else entirely. So we sort of are staying away from that, talking about inclusive education, equitable education. Uh, I think one key point is emphasizing the, the, all of the, the qualitative and even quantitative data that shows that inclusive and responsive education not only you know, benefits students in terms of their actions and in their attitudes, but also their academic achievement. The benefits of this type of approach to education, culturally responsive education and other similar approaches. Uh, I think, you know, in some places, uh, it's about making the positive message for why we need to value our diversity and reevaluate our history. I think in other places, it really is about, you know, sort of pushing hard on the local control of schools. Like, you know, think what you will of so-called CRT. You don't want the state telling your local elementary school what they can and can't say down to a word choice. Uh, so I think that that is a really, you know, you have, to, you have to know your audience. But I think a couple of the messages that we have been testing and that we know that resonate and that also are obviously in alignment with our legal analysis are that, um, yeah, the, this, is, this is a backlash against the thing that's beneficial. Uh, and this is also, um, you know, a, an example of government overreach. And I would just say, uh, I would just emphasize the song I've been singing from the beginning. This is impermissible viewpoint discrimination. I think everyone on the ground, in classrooms, in boards of education, need to really frame this as impermissible viewpoint discrimination. Um, that is the trigger word that will get the courts concerned about discursive liberty. That's super helpful. Especially, especially in, the, in the higher education context, the sort of catchphrase is academic freedom. I mean, that exists in K-12 as well to a somewhat, courts are less, hold it in less, slightly less high regard in the K-12 context, but it exists nonetheless. But in higher education, I think specifically to the extent that some of these laws, though not all of them, extend to higher education and might touch the kinds of things that a professor might teach in a college class, Again, we're talking about what courts are especially skeptical of, the kinds of academic intrusions. While, while the courts are very worried about what they call indoctrination of children, and therefore they don't actually allow a lot of discretion to K-12, especially the younger the K-5 to elementary school teachers, because they're worried that you know, the students are so impressionable that you have to have tight reins on the teachers. But in college, we're talking about adults, we're talking about a free exchange of ideas. We're talking about the place where new ideas must come to flourish and be born. Uh, and there, wherever you're impacting academic freedom, I think you'll have also a broad coalition of folks who are interested in higher education from a broad variety of perspectives who can see why uh, you don't want this type of viewpoint discrimination, especially, especially in a college classroom. But it, it, all of the context matters. You know, we are also talking about choice. I mean, so in higher education, we're talking about the choice to continue education. But I also think there's an opportunity to go back to what Mr. Sykes said um, about knowing your audience. Different people have different choice sets. And this is limiting the choice set of what students may ha have exposure to, what they may learn in an impermissible sense for unjustified reasons. This law doesn't apply, of course, to independent schools. So... What you might have, not ironically, are, you know, students who attend independent schools, which tend to be wealthier for people who tend to come from wealthier backgrounds, who are being exposed to the very theories and, and ideas that students who are attending public schools and public charter schools are not being exposed to systematically. And there's an issue of choice in that as well. 
So uh, to the extent that that motivates people to think about why are my children not able to learn a, the broad panoply of concepts and ideas um, because of the viewpoint where other students are, then it's something that we should consider adopting as part of our campaign. And, you know, just to underscore that, you know, the ninth, there's a great ninth, well, there's a complicated Ninth Circuit case, but the Ninth Circuit has explicitly recognized the student's First Amendment right to receive information. And I think that, it, you know, sort of highlights that type of framing as well. There's the interest of the teachers, there's the interest of the college professors, there's the interest of the college students. Uh, but I think front and center has to be um, the, the interest of the K-12 students because they, they are the primary target. Uh, and they are going to be, you know, the, the the first to suffer. And and that brings us actually in our first conversation, Beverly, uh, uh, Gloria Ladson Billings um, made that point, which was students are demanding. They're they're angry that they have been denied the knowledge of uh, of history, and uh, they are demanding it. And it's going to be very hard to put that that genie back in the in the bottle. So, um, so that's a very nice uh, tie-in to our last conversation. And I just want to thank you both. This has been a fabulous conversation, and I I've learned a lot. I don't know about you, Tangie. I always learn a lot when I hear Dr. Shaw, and I learned a lot from Mr. Sykes. So yes, it's been fantastic. So that wraps up the second episode of Ed Trust New Podcast, Ed Trusted. For lots of links to articles and resources, check out our show notes. We want to thank Emerson Sykes of the ACLU and Dr. Matthew Shaw of Vanderbilt University for really an amazing conversation that explored the legal issues raised by the sudden assault on our public schools. We also want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and Mike Patillo of Tonal Park who records and edits the podcast. Our theme music is by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time.